Chapter 13, A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13, Plans for Annexation. When Polk was inaugurated on the 4th of March, 1845, the California situation was ripe for some form of settlement. No one at all familiar with the conditions in the province looked for a continuation of the existing state. A change was inevitable, and before he assumed office, Polk had determined what that change should be. So far as he was concerned, the issue was already settled. California was to be annexed to the United States. Polk soon announced this purpose to the cabinet. To carry out the program of annexation, there were several possible methods. The simplest of these was acquisition by purchase, a plan which Jackson and Tyler had already tried, but without success. If this should fail again, there was next the ever-growing spirit of revolt among the Californians against Mexican rule, an attitude which might be used to great advantage by the United States. Or, if the Californians themselves could not be relied upon to bring about the desired object, there was still a sufficient body of Americans in the province, eager for adventure, restless under native rule, contemptuous, it must be confessed, of Mexican authority, holding to manifest destiny creed in its most exaggerated form, and inspired by the easy success of the Texas Revolution to wrest California from its Mexican rulers and place it under the protection of the United States. If none of these measures should succeed, or if they proved too slow to meet the emergency, there was always the last resort of war. Polk's first move in the California issue was a direct offer to purchase the province from Mexico. One cannot understand the negotiations by which he sought to accomplish this purpose without some knowledge of the existing political situation across the border. Revolution was then the normal condition of Mexico. At least 17 such movements had taken place in less than a quarter of a century. Presidents held their position in a purely tentative fashion, never sure from one sunrise to the next whether the night would see them still in office or exiles from the country. Under such conditions, when hostile factions were ever waiting an opportunity to stir up an inflammable people to overthrow the existing administration, a Mexican president's first care was to stay in office and give his enemies as little material for revolutionary propaganda as possible. His decisions on public questions and matters of policy were necessarily based on this primary consideration. Another difficulty, however, confronted every Mexican president, and one always of pressing necessity. This was to find sufficient funds with which to run the government, or to speak more plainly, sufficient funds with which to hold his followers in line and keep them from going over to the opposition. The two considerations just mentioned had always to be taken into account when the United States sought to negotiate for California. A desperate need of money, the hopelessness of making Mexican rule effective in California, and perhaps a desire to establish more cordial relations with the American government, prompted more than one president to dispose of the province. On the other hand, something of national pride, the ill-concealed opposition of European governments to American control of California, a traditional antipathy to the United States, and above all, the perfect realization that any cession of territory, 
no matter what the circumstances, would lead to popular retribution for such an act of sacrilege, compelled the repudiation of every offer. Common sense and an eager desire for ready cash were thus both alike outweighed by the fear of revolution. This dilemma, which confronted every Mexican president with whom negotiations for California were undertaken, was not appreciated by the Washington government. American officials, with a fixed determination to acquire the territory, knowing how little it actually benefited the Mexican government, aware of the chronic bankruptcy of the latter's treasury, and somewhat acquainted with the devious course of Mexican politics, could not understand why their oft-repeated offers to purchase the province were so consistently declined. When Polk opened his negotiations, the situation in Mexico was normally unsettled. In December 1844, a revolution had deposed Santa Ana for various high crimes and misdemeanors and placed General Herrera in the presidency. In June of the next year, Santa Ana was banished from the country and took up his residence at Havana. From this point of vantage, he kept a watchful eye on the political situation in Mexico, and, when conditions favored, entered into those secret negotiations with the United States which resulted in his return to power after the outbreak of the Mexican War. In the meanwhile, President Herrera was encountering a few perplexities of his own. A dangerous rival had arisen in the person of General Paredes, while a dozen lesser opponents were also in the field. The national treasury was bare of funds and the army without pay. Congress was daily becoming more hostile, and the press noisily denounced the administration for its Texas policy. Various bills were passed to remedy the economic and military situation, but as these were accompanied by prohibitions on the sale of national territory, the only source of revenue available, they served to intensify rather than to relieve Herrera's troubles. Diplomatic relations between the United States and Mexico had been broken off with the annexation of Texas, but Herrera was suspected of seeking to restore them, and also of a willingness to recede from the position the Mexican Congress had taken with regard to the lost province across the Rio Grande. Paredes, skillfully playing upon the popular mind and also undermining the president's control of the army, was only waiting a favorable opportunity to unseat his rival and assume control of the government himself. Such were the internal conditions of Mexico and the impossible position occupied by Herrera when Polk brought forward his program of purchasing California. The first step in this plan was, of course, the reestablishment of diplomatic relations with the Mexican government. This in itself was a difficult undertaking because of the embarrassing effect it was sure to have upon the tottering Herrera administration, but Polk had reason to believe, through information received from William S. Parrott, an American dentist resident in Mexico who had been appointed confidential agent of the United States government, that Herrera was willing to take the risk of receiving an American diplomat. In this opinion, Diamond and Black, United States consuls at Veracruz and Mexico City, respectively, concurred. Accordingly, with the consent of his cabinet, Polk appointed John Slidell of New Orleans, a man familiar with Mexican conditions and acquainted with the Spanish language, to undertake the negotiations. Quote, One great object of this mission, as stated by the president, 
wrote Polk in the never-failing journal in which he daily recorded alike the significant and trivial events of his administration, would be to adjust a permanent boundary between Mexico and the United States, and that in doing this the minister would be instructed to purchase, for a pecuniary consideration, Upper California and New Mexico. He said that a better boundary would be the Del Norte from its mouth to the Paso, in latitude about 32 degrees north, and thence west of the Pacific Ocean, Mexico ceding to the United States all the country east and north of these lines. The president said that for such a boundary, the amount of pecuniary consideration to be paid would be of small importance. He supposed it might be had for 15 or 20 millions, but he was ready to pay 40 millions for it if it could not be had for less. In these views, the cabinet agreed with the president unanimously. If the report that Jackson had offered only 500,000 for the better part of the same territory only 10 years before were true, it is apparent that California real estate was rapidly rising in value. It was intended that Slidell's mission should be kept a profound secret. This was highly desirable both to protect the Herrera administration and also to prevent Great Britain and France from delaying or defeating the negotiations. In spite of every precaution, however, the news of Slidell's coming preceded him to Mexico, and with it went the sinister rumor that he had at his command a million dollars with which to bribe President Herrera. The latter, therefore, was in a sorry predicament when the American minister landed at Veracruz. To receive him and open negotiations meant a direct bid for revolution. To reject him not only meant the loss of a great financial opportunity, but also an affront to the United States that might easily lead to war. In this dilemma, Herrera chose the latter course. Slidell was refused recognition on purely technical grounds, for which there was no other justification than Herrera's fear of being overthrown. Slidell's rejection, however, while it defeated the chance of any support Herrera might have gained from the United States, did not win for him the popular favor he sought to obtain. The plan of San Luis Potosí had already been drafted by the followers of Paredes, and before Slidell left Mexico City, Herrera had gone out of power on the heels of a bloodless revolution. Leaving the palace, as one writer humorously said, with the entire body of his loyal officers and officials, his mild face, and his respectable side-whiskers in one hired cab. Slidell's attempt to open negotiations with the new government met with no more cordial reception than it had obtained from the old. His request to be received as envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary, a request made from Jalapa where Slidell had gone after leaving the city of Mexico, was refused with little courtesy and much emphasis by Castillo, Secretary of Foreign Relations in the Paredes Cabinet. The American envoy would stand no more. Against the wishes of President Polk, as it afterward proved, he immediately demanded his passport and left for the United States, disgusted with the tortuous course of Mexican diplomacy and thoroughly convinced that no government could be established in that country stable enough to carry out a consistent foreign policy. In this temper, he came back to Washington to lay his report before a president already impatient to the breaking point with the sorry condition of Mexican affairs. The failure of Herrera and Paredes to reopen negotiations with the United States 
destroyed Polk's first hope of securing California. As already pointed out, however, there were still three other possibilities of accomplishing the desired end. To one of these, indeed, Polk had already turned even before the failure of Slidell's mission became known. Among the American residents of California was the New England merchant Thomas O. Larkin, whose activities as a publicity agent for California have already been spoken of. Larkin had come to Monterey in 1832 and rapidly built up a prosperous business. Incidentally, too, he had won for himself a favorable reputation among the leading Californians as well as among his own countrymen. In 1843, he had been appointed United States Consul to California, the only person who ever held that office, and in this capacity found it possible to furnish his home government with very valuable information. In Larkin's despatches, affairs of commerce and trade, the ordinary consular concerns, were subordinated to matters of larger import. The political and military strength of the province, its relations to Mexico, the feeling of the native Californians toward the United States, the arrival and reception of American immigrants, the influence and ambition of European nations in California questions, such were the topics most dwelt upon in the American consul's communications to Washington. In turn, the government encouraged him to report every item that might be made to serve the nation's interests. It was natural that Polk, cognizant of Larkin's high standing with the leading Californians and aware of his knowledge of California affairs, should have entrusted to him the chief responsibility of carrying out the president's second plan of acquiring the territory. The plan itself was definitely outlined to Larkin by Polk's Secretary of State, James Buchanan, in a dispatch dated October 17, 1845. This communication, unfortunately too long to be quoted here in full, contained three suggestions for Larkin's guidance. These, in brief, were as follows. 1. Though the United States would not foment a revolution in California, Larkin might assure the Californians that his government would play the role of protector in case they sought to separate from Mexico. 2. Should any attempt be made to transfer California to a European power, the United States would prevent the cession. 3. To carry out the plans of the administration more effectually, win the friendship of the Californians for the United States, and thwart the activities of European nations, Larkin was appointed the President's confidential agent and virtually instructed to use his own discretion in handling the situation. Two copies of this dispatch were forwarded to Larkin. One went by sea and reached California early in 1846. The other was entrusted to Lieutenant Archibald H. Gillespie, a confidential agent of the United States government, who traveled across Mexico in the disguise of an invalid merchant seeking help. Fearing capture at the hands of the Mexicans, Gillespie destroyed his copy of the document after memorizing its contents. A third copy of the dispatch was sent to Slidell to guide him in his negotiations with the Herrera administration. The whole tenor of Buchanan's letter convinced Larkin that the president expected him to prepare the way for the peaceful annexation of California by the United States. He accordingly began systematically to carry out his mission. In the province at that time, there were a number of Americans who had married California women and become Mexican citizens. 
to several of the most influential of these men like don abel stearns of los angeles john warner of san diego and jacob lees of sonoma he wrote confidentially of his new position urging them to aid him in his program of winning over the californians stearns the dominant foreigner in the south he appointed his secret assistant to manage the business in and around los angeles to a number of the native leaders in the north with whom he stood on intimate terms larkin also revealed the general character of polk's instructions as these men were already weary of mexican rule it was not difficult to secure some measure of support for the idea of independence especially as larkin held before them the promise of substantial reward from his own government the real difficulty was not their affection for mexico but the inclination on the part of some to look to great britain instead of to the united states for aid those known definitely to favor the american program were urged by larkin to attend the various juntas which were then being held to meet the existing crisis in california affairs and to bring their influence to bear upon the decisions of those bodies these efforts of the american consul gave promise of success several of the principal californians came over definitely to larkin's position and one of these general castro as influential as any man in the province even went so far as to draw up a short history of his plans for declaring california independent in eighteen forty seven or forty eight as soon as a sufficient number of foreigners should arrive equally encouraging reports were received from the south and it seemed only the matter of a year or two before california would renounce her allegiance to mexico and voluntarily seek annexation to the united states two things however broke in upon this plan of peaceful acquisition and ended the movement which larkin had begun at president polk's request one of these was the uprising of the american settlers in california known as the bear flag revolt the other was the mexican war before taking up the first of these movements in detail it is well to point out that an independent california under anglo-saxon control was a subject of considerable speculation long before the bear flag movement in its own way sought to carry out the idea in the years before eighteen forty six this plan of independence found expression in three forms a union of oregon and california into an autonomous state a union of california with a newly established republic of texas and the erection of california by itself into an independent nation the first of these the union of oregon and california was suggested by thomas jefferson the father of trans mississippi expansion as far back as eighteen twelve when he expressed the hope that the descendants of astor's colonists on the columbia would one day occupy the whole pacific coast covering it with free and independent americans unconnected with us but by the ties of blood and interest and employing like us the rights of self-government in the early forties this idea obtained considerable prominence and commended itself to a number of careful observers for example wilkes the commander of the united states exploring expedition wrote quote, the situation in california will cause its separation from mexico before many years it is very probable that the country will become united with oregon with which it will perhaps form a state that is designed to control the destiny of the pacific a year or two later waddy thompson united states minister to mexico 
was told of a definite plot to separate California from Mexico, and asked if his government would be willing to surrender title to Oregon so that California might unite with the latter to form a great republic. Among the American residents of both territories, the plan was frequently discussed, and it was prophesied that if the Union should ever be accomplished, a new empire would arise on the Pacific, whose capital, at least as one writer predicted, located on the Bay of San Francisco, possibly on the site occupied by the miserable village of Yerba Buena, would become, within the century, one of the great commercial centers of the world. One man, indeed, Langsford W. Hastings, whose activities as an emigrant guide have already been spoken of, had in mind the definite purpose of making himself president of the new republic. A second proposal put forward between 1836 and 1845 was the Union of Texas and California. The Texas Congress, in fact, at one time proposed to extend their national boundaries to embrace California, but the idea was given up because the territory was too large and sparsely populated to be governed by a young republic. Jackson also, as has been noted, urged the same plan upon the Texan minister in 1837, but to no better purpose. After 1840, however, the activities of Hastings and other potential filibusters gave new impetus to the proposed union of Texas and California. The movement was also stimulated by the demoralized condition existing in the latter province. So strong was the idea by 1844 that the American charge at Mexico City warned Calhoun, then as Secretary of State actively interested in the annexation of Texas, that his plans would be completely thwarted if Texas and California should ever be united. In such case, said Calhoun's informant, Oregon and the disaffected provinces of northern Mexico would join the movement. Texas would then no longer seek admission to the United States, but as head of the new confederation would prove a dangerous rival both to the cotton interests of the South and the manufacturers of the North. A little later, Sam Houston either to frighten the dilatory United States Congress into favorable action on Texas annexation, or with the dream of an empire before his eyes, brought forward the plan of uniting Texas, California, and Oregon with Chihuahua and Sonora to form a great republic which would not be less than a rival power to any of the nations now in existence. Had the United States failed to annex Texas, Unquestionably, Houston would have attempted to carry out his plan of uniting the latter with California, thus giving the enlarged republic a dominant position on the Pacific and assuring for it a great commercial future. With the annexation of Texas by the United States, the proposed union of Texas and California automatically fell to earth. This, however, did not mean the end of the movement for the independence of California by the American residents of the province a program distinctly different from that undertaken by Larkin, as sketched in the preceding pages, and tacitly approved by the administration. The former plan looked to foreigners for its impetus and direction. The Polk-Larkin plan relied upon native leadership and initiative for its success. With careful handling, there was no reason why those two movements should prove antagonistic to each other. But too great haste by the Americans the most of whom, of course, were ignorant of the program Larkin had set on foot, or disregard on their part for the feelings of the Californians, would certainly drive the latter back into the arms of Mexico, defeat the project of a peaceful separation from the home government, and bring about civil war, 
not between California and Mexico, but between Americans and Californians. End of chapter 13